You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Beth Bartel. Yesterday marked the two-year anniversary of the devastating earthquake and tsunami that rocked and partially devoured the northeastern coast of Japan. Although this area is prone to earthquakes, the Tohoku event hit a magnitude greater than scientists thought possible for this region. According to the United States Geological Survey, it was a 9.0, tied for the fourth largest earthquake on record, and ranked as the seventh deadliest. Last month, I spoke with author Gretel Ehrlich about her recently published book, Facing the Wave, A Journey in the Wake of the Tsunami. We enter the interview where she is talking about traveling with her translator's family on what they called family holidays, in which her translator's father, Sapporo, drove. He drove us up the coast to um, see the the first three towns uh, that were destroyed by the tsunami, and he... He said, you, you have to see this as soon as possible before they start cleaning it up so you'll understand what what really happened here. And as soon as possible was three months after the earthquake and tsunami, correct? Yeah. And your your book, you're very, you mentioned that you... Um, are an aficionado of Japanese poetry, and your book is very lyrical and also very descriptive. It's almost, in some ways, a, a series of snapshots. Um, and I was taken by the the scenes that you described a full three months after the tsunami. Could you could you tell us a little bit about what you saw? Well, the first town we went to is uh, Minimas Sanriku where 10,000 people out of 17,000 total died in the tsunami. The town is non-existent now. It's just wiped clean. Uh, you know, a lot of Japan, it goes um, it's sort of like Colorado. It's a, a flat basin, and then it goes straight up into high mountains. Well, not high like here, but they're steep and beautiful. Um, and so the tsunami just... It just erased everything up to the mountains. There's nothing left. Just the rubbish piles were um, maybe um, a story high on either, you know, you drive down the road and it was rubble on either side of the road uh, between 20 and 150 feet tall. In this town, there's a hospital at, at the end of a road, um, a three-story hospital. On the second, the terrace of a second story was a fishing boat just sitting there. There was a x-ray machine hanging out of a window and a nurse's uniform hanging out of a window. Many, many patients, doctors, and nurses died. They were trying to move patients to the third floor, but the third floor wasn't high enough. You went back two more times after that. Yeah, I spent a month in three different seasons. And how different were things in December when you went back, the last time you went back? Really quite different. The, you know, the first month it was still survivor's euphoria. Uh, I mean, that kind of wild mix of deep, deep grief, for especially those who lost loved ones. Not lot. They weren't so upset about losing their houses. I mean, you know, they these are people who have lived in earthquake country a long time. Um, and in September, 
there was a horrible typhoon that just wiped out everything that had been rebuilt or not rebuilt but um, repaired or replanted um, more boats were lost but and in December it was very cold but people there was a sense that people had were actually facing the day-to-day dilemma of how to make money how to make a living how to eat you know when you've lost your I mean most of the, this is rural Japan it's not Tokyo so they were either rice farmers or fishermen and when you lose your means of of livelihood and you have you have no recourse and so they were um, they were beginning to get boats or fixing up boats they were beginning to plant winter vegetables building greenhouses repairing the houses that were standing you know depending on the topography there were some in some wider areas there were some houses at the very back that were standing so you know there was a real kind of sense of digging in and making survival viable and there were some people who didn't want to talk to you on that trip, right? People who you had spoken with earlier who were open to speaking with you about their experiences who were not no. comfortable. No? I don't, not that I recall. <laughs> I'm trying to think of um, uh, Masumi, is that? Masumi. Masumi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Masumi's um, great uncle. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Part of a long family saga. So uh, her family were rice farmers. Uh, her uncle and aunt and her great uncle and great aunt uh, had all farmed on the same big family plot. Uh, and what happened was, uh, at first, the government hit a great uncle. Um, great uncle and great aunt's house was still standing but it had been just the wave had gone through the first floor so there were no windows no doors nothing um but it was standing it was in good shape so they were trying to get permission to repair it and move back in the government was not sure whether they were going to allow that then but they were replanting a garden there just so they would have something to eat anyway while they waited to find out then the government said, okay, you can rebuild. You're old. If this, You have to sign a paper saying that if the tsunami comes, you won't, you know, be angry at us. You, you know, you, you have to, you know, so, sort of sign your life away. Okay. They were thrilled with that. And then, then the typhoon came and it wiped out everything. And they were really, really deeply depressed. They, it was, uh, I mean, they were in their 70s and they... They just thought, we, how many times can we start over again? And so when I came through at the beginning of December, they had canceled all their plans to rebuild. They had not um, replanted again. And we were really afraid they would commit suicide. But then um, a few months ago, I got an email from Masumi saying, They're, they have hired the carpenter again to rebuild they did plant a winter garden um er, every the family's together again there and everything is fine so but you know they didn't want me to see them um when they were depressed 
Uh, I can understand that. <laughs> um, tell us more, and I didn't mean to catch you off guard with that, the point that I was just wanting to make the point uh, that essentially you were um, making that, um, you know, things didn't necessarily just get easier after yeah. the tsunami that, you know, there was that euphoria at first and people were willing to tell stories, yeah. but then there were times even on that, you know, life. Yeah. Life and a lot of people, especially older people, committed suicide, mostly because it wasn't out of despair. They, I think they didn't want to take up food and space that they felt younger people needed and they didn't want to be in the way. How is this story... How is the story uniquely Japanese? So, of course, it's not a fictional story, but I'll still use the word story. Um, how would this have been different if it had happened in another place? Well, I don't know how it would be different, but I know that in Japan, people face what is without any sentimentality. They just take it in their stride. I mean, you have to think of the whole history of this island, both seismically and politically. They've already been through a lot during the war, thanks to us. And um, and also, I think it's a, a foundational aspect of their culture, which really came from China and Korea, that um, their aesthetic sense, their sense of beauty, um, is framed by perishability and uh, a very strong understanding of impermanence. And so these people, especially rural people, because they're, you know, really hardworking and they're tough-minded and um, strong-bodied and they have a sense of um, persistence and um, they just kind of, they took it in stride. I mean, they, you know, one Shinto priest said to me, everything here is based on wa, which means together living, which is a Shinto idea, and shunyata, which is a Buddhist notion of emptiness, meaning not a nihilistic emptiness, but that that there are no, we, we can't project what we want onto the world. We just have to take what is. And and I think those two things really describe the Japanese response to a disaster like this. And there was also lots of laughter, you know, because it was uh, it was surreal, and it was um, you know there were uh, they didn't you know sort of hold this idea of of tragedy. I mean, they, so the laughter came, the tears came, the, the, you know, the despair when the typhoon came and that quickly went away. You know, they really just let their emotions move with what was actually happening. Did you notice whether people had different emotions or different attitudes toward the tsunami and the results of the tsunami versus the... Uh, failure of the nuclear reactors. Yes, they, they were very angry about the meltdowns, of course. Who wouldn't be? Especially 
after World War II. I mean, one woman I met said, she was laughing. She said, you know what? I lost two houses. I lost one in Nagasaki, and I just lost mine in the tsunami. Isn't that amazing? She said, how many people like me do you think there are in Japan? Um, I mean, she was laughing, but of course, you know that inside that laughter is a, a sense of, well, impermanence and history and you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but there was never this why me feeling. It was just, well, strange things happen in life. And here I am. But they were, but it did make people become activists to feel that they had a voice that they could, um, that they, they, it was okay to lose faith in the government that it was okay to see that corruption and uh, lying could happen. That, I mean, it was a, a strange reversal that the emperor and the empress came down from their lofty position and they actually came to evacuation centers and, you know, sat on their knees and held people's hands and listened to their stories, while at the same time the politicians and corporate heads were lying to the people and um, just trying to cover the whole thing up. And and so it was, in a way, a return to being old-style Japanese instead of the 21st century um, market economy world. It was, they, they, they saw that they weren't truly a part of that world. They weren't allowed to be a part of was being fobbed off as democracy. And you, you'd mentioned you were traveling with an activist for part of yes for mm -hmm. part of the time, and um and you you did talk in the book about um about uh, a possible rise of activism within the Japanese people and also uh, role changes where uh, people who or groups who have been on opposite sides of an issue are now on the same side, such as Greenpeace and the fishermen. Would you like to yeah, right. tell the us Greenpeace a little bit about that? People, they were on their way to stop whaling in the southern oceans. And when the tsunami hit, they turned their ship around and came back. And in towns where they had been um, um, sort of you know, weighing in against the slaughter of dolphins, for exa example, and um, and whales, they suddenly um, became partners with fishermen to help determine how much marine radiation there was, because the government was lying about it, and there is still uh, radioactive water going into the ocean, and they're still lying about it. But th this was really serious. And the fishermen, you know, they couldn't get an answer from TEPCO or their politicians. And so they started relying on the Greenpeace people who, I mean, in Tokyo, the one guy was going down to the huge fish market with his the, um, his meter and cutting open the fish and laying it right inside. He said, waving it over the top of the fish and saying, oh, no, these fish aren't radiated. It, it isn't going to do it. So, and then there were people doing um, tests of the water, you know, off the entire 375-mile coast, and nobody else was helping the fishermen that way. So, yes, strange bedfellows, and it's it was really wonderful. And, and I think it, it humbled 
both sides, you know, in the way that happens when people come to the table together and find out that, you know, what's really important is the health of the oceans and the land, is the biological health of the planet is the, the most important thing that we have. And so on that ground, they really had the same goal. Do you have any idea whether those relationships have, have lasted? I think they're ongoing, the last I heard, yeah. I wanted to go back to, um, to the typhoon. So that's something that, you know, certainly the earthquake was in the news. Um, and, then, and then months later, a typhoon comes through, and you were there for that. That was yes, in September. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you commented before on how the typhoon came through and, and wreaked havoc on this area, but could you comment again or tell us a little more about, about the effects of the typhoon physically and emotionally on, on the area yeah. that was affected by the tsunami? We watched the typhoon coming north um, on television, uh, on the weather channel or whatever they have. And um, Masumi said, oh, you know, usually the typhoons go to the west side of Japan, but this one is coming straight at us, and it, it did, just straight at us. When it, in the middle of the typhoon, it was uh, just this constant roar, and we we were looking out the windows and you it was a curtain of rain and mist and you I mean you couldn't see anything it was just a roar like 110 mile an hour winds blowing through and um, so I think it was a 17 well you know probably two to three feet of standing water the next day and Masumi and her mother and I went driving around trying to, you know, really see what had happened down on the Sendai Plain. And um, it was just standing water, and Masumi said, I'm glad you can see this because this is what it looked like after the tsunami came, with all the same effects. People's, even, so people had lost their houses, and they were now in temporary houses farther up a, a hill, and even those were Many of those were uh, flooded out, so they were homeless again. And all the planting, the winter planting uh, for vegetables was were just totally underwater, gone, just gone. Many houses had damaged roofs and things, really more from the um, earthquake. And people had done all those repairs, and or, or maybe if they hadn't finished the repairs, um, those how many of those houses were flooded. The first floor was flooded again, um, or roofs that hadn't been repaired. Water just came pouring in. Um, it was just, and the you know the the weather right before it was incredibly hot. Just that horrible, horrible hot, humid, and and then that terrible stillness and the strange colored sky, <laughs> and then afterwards, and then all, all the streets, all the buses, the trains, the airports, everything was stopped. No one had electricity. Nobody, you know, we, we could get through on the phone to some places. We were trying to drive north to help out, and, y I mean, you couldn't get anywhere. And so I think people just thought 
you know, that, that there was no hope that somehow they, they had been, um, they were the target of something that was going to keep happening over and over. And then there were all these predictions of more earthquakes. It was a big prediction that there was going to be one in Tokyo and people were kind of panicked about that. And, uh, it it was you know people were like shamans were making predictions of a certain kind of cloud formation and certain weather and then that would be or if your feet itched there would be another um earthquake and and there were but they weren't they they didn't cause tsunamis but um it was just a real feeling of hopelessness a lot of people got sick cuz the weather situation was so it kept changing so much, and people were getting colds and pneumonia, and it was a sad time. And there were continual reminders with aftershocks. Oh, oh! In September, well, every time I was there, but there was at least one earth. I would call major earthquake every day, every day. It was just constantly moving and. You know, people were saying, well, you know, because seismically this has happened and this has happened. So that probably means now we're really going to have a big one. Or, there, you know, you were just never, you could never really relax. A lot of them happened in the night and it wake you up. And I mean, the, these were, you know, 6.5 earthquakes, 7.0 earthquakes, you know, small. big ones. I mean, you know, the run-up heights and... In that, in one town in Miyako, we're 133 feet. That's a big wave. <laughs> That's amazing. And there were survivors in that town. You talked to fishermen yeah. in yeah, that yeah. town. Yeah. We, we're still talking. Where is that page? Oh, there it is. Okay. There go. <clears throat> okay. A tsunami wave is born from displacement, not wind and does not travel over the ocean's surface, but rises suddenly from the rupture zone and drags bottom all the way to shore. As it comes into shallow water, the wave mounds up, and its height increases dramatically. There are stories of fishing boats going out too late and flipping. They faced the wave and died. None of their crews were seen again. On shore, the wave plowed through harbors, ports, parking lots, houses, stores, temples, graveyards, and schools, spilling over bridge railings. It was not a wave, but a black waterfall. The wave lifted up and became a mountain. The mountain was water-moving, annihilating itself in a crescendo of striated, dissolving foam. I thought it was only one wave surging and recoiling, but images from the satellite Grace recently revealed that the wave was actually a composite. Two seismically generated wave fronts merged, deflected from different undersea ridges and troughs. As they moved forward, they came together to form a single wave that, when focused by a narrow harbor, had run-up heights as high as 133 feet. Did people that you talked to seem to have any idea that the wave could be this big? I think they were a bit shocked at how how big this was. They the uh, in up in Miyako where I talked to fishermen who had driven their boat as, up and over this wave. 
um, said, oh, you know, we come from a long history of tsunami. My grandmother swam in the last tsunami and survived. And, but this was bigger than anything they had seen. So it, this was a unique moment in their lives. Yet they think it could happen again. They know it will happen again. Well, well, thank you, Gretel Elric, so much for talking with me today. Um, Gretel's book is Facing the Wave, A Journey in the Wake of the Tsunami. And I really, I came away from it with a much better understanding of of what's going on along the coast um, and, and the slow, the slow, uh, difficult and sometimes hopeful process of recovery. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you.